Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today in our From the Vault series, I speak with Howard Parry Husbands, who is the Chief Executive Officer and founder of the Pollinate Group. Now, Pollinate are known uh, for their in-depth, high-quality market research, but also Howard has a great interest in systems thinking. Now, this episode was released back in 2021, but the insight shared by Howard is certainly really relevant as we think about creating positive social impact and addressing complex challenges through innovative thinking, collaboration, which lies at the heart of effective systems thinking. I started by asking Howard back in October of 2021, what is systems thinking? And why, if you work in communications, should you care? Great question. So let, let, let's focus on on the basics, if you like, and, and, a, and a little bit of almost history here. Probably the first thing to think about is systems thinking, if you want, is the recognition that everything is related to everything else. And when I was a, a, an undergraduate student, there was a sort of thing called chaos theory emerging and the idea that a butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazon and the next thing a tropical cyclone hit Britain or whatever might be the case. Now, that, that's really stretching a metaphor. That's not quite systems thinking. But it does, I think, illustrate what actually the idea of systems thinking is, which is that when we try in government policy or in our communications to address just one thing, we end up with unexpected outcomes or policy failures as a result of not recognizing that if you only change one part of a complex system, well, then some other part will compensate. Um, and a great example of this in Australia, of course, is things like cane toads. Uh, there was a, an issue with bugs eating sugar cane, so some clever chap thought, well, why don't we bring in cane toads? They eat bugs. And, of course, the worst thing possibly to have brought in was cane toads because they don't really eat the right bugs and there's a whole host of other problems that have been created. So that's a great example where a failure to understand the complexity of the system, the cane toads aren't capable of getting up to the high bugs on the um, sugar cane. The cane toads are toxic. The cane toads eat just about absolutely everything. Um, so we create a much bigger problem as a result of not thinking about the consequences on the entire system. So there we go. Systems thinking really just maps the system, says, well, hang on, what are the key parts of this complex interrelated system? And accepts, most of all, that a simple linear solution won't work. That's systems thinking. So in terms then of systems thinking as it relates to a typical um, communications challenge that someone working in government may have, let's take, for example, the issue of environmental water. So environmental water is obviously a critical part of sustaining um, biodiversity and the various uh, environmental ecosystems when, uh, well, at at all different times uh, of the water flow, whether there is not enough water during drought or when there's an abundance of water. So managing that ability to uh, ensure that there's adequate water um, available to 
uh, restore and manage and sustain the environment. How would you, if, if you were to promote or to uh, think about, okay, I've got to, you know, tell the Australian people about why we're spending money um, acquiring uh, the rights to water for the environment, how would you think about that as a problem using the systems thinking model? Okay. Uh, there's a great quarterly essay written on the Murray-Darling Basin recently, which is probably a great um, example of, and, and in there are some examples of systems thinking in action. So the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, um, for instance, I mean, some of the key things there is, do we actually know how much water is there? Do we have a reasonably good idea of how much water is flowing at any given point throughout the system? And the answer, by the way, is no, we don't. Um, we do in some parts and not in others. The second thing is, is, is it consistent in terms of how we apply the rules and the what, what, what farmers can do? And the answer again is no. Uh, in some parts of the basin, the rules are different to other parts of the basin. In, in some parts of the Murray-Darling Basin, one side of the river in one state has a different set of rules to the other side and so on. But let, let's get into the nitty gritty here. The other thing is you can say behaviour change and wasting water. So you might say, right, well, let's say this farmer has an allocation and that allocation goes on their land and then some of that water flows back into the river and you could say well hang on that's a wasted bit of allocation he's had say 100 units of water and 20 units of flow back into the river so really he only needs to take 80 units out so what we do is we make a better system we might put it in pipes and not open channels and reduce evaporation and reduce overland flow that seems like a better system the unexpected problem is that some of that water that flowed over land also flowed into the soil and and there was actually uh, if you like a feedback loop some of that water actually kept the river running so by reducing the amount of water that flows off the farmer's allocation, you actually reduce the amount of flow in the river. So the irony is by making it more efficient <laughs> in terms of the farmer's use of water, you might also ironically reduce the amount of flow because some of that inefficiency kept the environmental flow going. So what I'm getting at here is that we look at the, the, the system of water and we, we categorize it as, well, there's this much is going to be used for irrigation or for people. Um, and there's this much is going to be an environmental flow. The river doesn't see it that way. It's just a, a whole load of water in the river system. And we, we have made it terribly complicated by putting rules in place and trying to measure different allocations. But we're not, we don't exactly know where all that allocation is coming from. We don't measure it precisely. And yet we put rules in place assuming that we do. So it's very difficult from a communications perspective. We, 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 can, we can say there's environmental flow and then there's irrigation, but it's actually not that simple. So how then, and, and are you suggesting really that the, that the systems thinking element, that notion of really drawing out the context and each of these interrelated elements begins as part of the problem solving long before you're starting to think about, well, how am I now going to explain this um, to a particular audience, you know, wh whoever that may be? Yes, and I think that you, you make the point there very well. You've got to start it long before. The problem is we've already started. We're in the midst of it. The, the wicked problems, if you like, that characterise so much of our government communications and government policy, and, and even in, in, indeed characterise so much of industry and society, um, wicked problems are, have emerged um, from we used to have quite linear, tame problems. We, we could address this particular problem through a solution. Um, if you think back to health, public health, you know, we had smallpox vaccinations, vaccines, they were going to save the world. It was all going to be absolutely fine. Uh, now we have microbial resistance. Uh, we have too, we, we, we've used too many antibiotics and, and they're becoming resistant again because the, the cure here, 
in that in this case antibiotics uh, has been over prescribed and 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 not correctly prescribed and now we're creating multiple resistant uh, bacteria so so a solution creates a new set of problems and wicked problems aren't stable they don't have clear solutions they're socially complex they're difficult to define they're multi-causal there's lots of things that cause them not just one thing they generally require behavior change they, they need society and individuals to change their behavior and they have unforeseen consequences that is to say you do one thing and the next thing happens and you go well that wasn't expected because the system is complex and it's impossible to see the entire system at once wicked problems are characterized by chronic policy failure so where we've seen lots of design thinking which i think is a fantastic innovation in recent years in terms of policy and communications the issue is the design thinking needs to be led first of all by a good understanding of systems thinking and the system dynamics Simply put, you can't redesign the system unless you understand how and where you need to do the redesign. So, yeah, systems thinking needs to be, I suppose, the long thinking, the considered thinking that takes place. We also need to recognize that we don't have easy solutions, that it's it's not about winners and losers. Um, and politicians tend to like to frame things as goodies and baddies or in three-word slogans. That's not going to work anymore. That's very divisive and and doesn't actually lead to long-term solutions. In fact, can lead to more and exacerbated problems. So this acceptance of complexity, how widespread do you believe that is with policymakers? Or do um, they still live in the world of linear solutions, simple solutions to complex problems? I would suggest it's much more widespread acceptance of complexity with policymakers than it is with politicians. It's, it's, it's dif- difficult politics. <clears throat> politics likes black and white, winners and losers, enemies, goodies and baddies. Um, policy is, is much better when it recognises that there is no right and wrong, that everybody can be right and wrong at the same time. Think about the parable of the blind men and the elephants. None of the blind men were wrong. One of them felt the elephant's trunk and thought the elephant was a snake and never felt its leg and thought it was like a tree trunk. And one felt its ear and thought it was like a fan. And they argued, and in the parable, the elephant, of course, walks away. They they lose sight of the elephant. They lose the elephant. The elephant, in the room as such, walks away. Um, the, the lesson here is they're all right, but they're also all wrong. It's only when they recognize that they can all be right and wrong at the same time and that collectively they're able to see the elephant. And that's the same with, with policymakers. They're recognizing increasingly that complexity is a thing, that there's no point in trying to tackle an economic issue unless you tackle the health issue. And there's no point in trying to tackle the health issue unless you tackle the underlying structural drivers of inequality, which might be institutional racism, it might be um, institutional injustice and poverty and those sort of things. It's all interrelated. Politicians, they prefer to put things in boxes. Mm. So this long thinking, and I think that's a, a nice way to describe it because I imagine as you uh, uncover, um, as you uh, encourage more debate, more discussion, more facts come uh, to the surface to be considered, to be debated, to be discussed, mm-hmm. how then should people think about supporting that type of policy development where it is done over the longer period and it's perhaps not as certain as some might like 
Uh, that's a good question. Dealing with uncertainty is is one of the biggest challenges um, from a communications perspective because people don't like uncertainty. We're actually okay with risk. We can manage risk. We're all okay taking risk. I mean, that's you know, we take out a mortgage in, in the hope that in 20 years' time we'll pay it back and own our house. And we're, we're okay with that. It's what everybody does. But there's risk involved there. But that's institutional. We all accept it. Everybody does it. Uncertainty. Well, we don't like that at all. That's why we like to fix our interest rates. And that's why we like to get the best deal to mitigate the risk. So uncertainty is really hard. The best way to manage uncertainty is to be positive and hopeful. Don't create division and and fear. Um, and division and fear is a is a very powerful way to, to gain power. And uh, I think Donald Trump in, in the US has really clearly demonstrated how powerful fear and division can be. But if you're positive and hopeful, then actually you can have twice as much power by driving unity. So you, 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 you can use division and fear and uncertainty and you'll, you'll still absolutely um, be successful, but you'll only be successful half the time and to half the people. If you have a positive, hopeful message, then you can accept uncertainty, but you can say, well, we have a vision. We think we can address this. We don't have certainty, but we've got a good idea of the best things to do, and we're going to work on this, and we're going to keep going. And that's a unity message. So that's that's the first thing I would suggest, a positive, hopeful message. We're seeing that now with the new president in the US, for instance. Um, but yes, that that it's really important not to be divisive and to um, instigate conflict, uh, because that simply won't help to tackle wicked problems. But then how do you then sustain that? That's a, you know, sort of a... Uh, an underlying principle that you want to bring to the discussion, as you say, complex, wicked problems, yep. multiple stakeholders, different interests. But how then do you uh, sustain that over time? One of the key as, things as the conflict sort of arrives, which it inevitably will, because ultimately mm. people are going to have differing views. Exactly, and that's a key point. So the other thing you need is multiple messages, uh, especially for complex issues. So when I talk about multiple messages, let's say let's take a simple example. You might have a traditional mindset and a more progressive mindset that seems to characterise a lot of. Um, uh, democratic and certainly sort of Western democratic thinking. And it's also human nature, that sort of, there's a bunch of people who are quite open-minded and like change. There's a bunch of people who are less open-minded and uh, don't don't like change. And that's your traditional progressive set of values, if you like. You, you therefore need to frame what you're trying to do. It might be environmental water flows um, that in a way that is relevant to a traditional mindset, a group of people with a different set of values to a progressive mindset. It's the same thing you're trying to achieve. Um, a traditional mindset will, generally speaking, be looking for things like economic security and, and um, success, uh, security, safety, patriotism, those sort of things. A progressive mindset will be looking more for things like um, environmental and social justice, equality, and long-term intergenerational equity. So you can frame the idea of what you're trying to do with a water system here in different ways. And, and, and that's incredibly important. We have different messages for different audiences to, to make them accept that the vision should work for everyone. Um, and I, I certainly am not seeing enough of that in terms of government communication. The government really prefers to have a single message that works for everyone and gets the, get, you know, gets the idea across. And, and, and quite simply, it just doesn't work terribly well, you know. Yeah. Well, you did actually, during our conversation, during the GovComs Festival, talk about the death Mm. of the single message uh, strategy. Yeah. Um, perhaps give me a little bit more on that, um, if, if, if you like. 
Yeah, totally. So if we take that that um, systems approach and we take the point you just made there where different people have different values and therefore, you know, how do you talk to them? The first thing you do is you go, okay, well, we're trying to achieve an objective which is complex. We need to do lots of different things. So we need diversity. So we do a lot of work at Pollinate, for instance, on forest systems, and that, that is riven by the single message um, conflict, which is either native forestry is a bad thing, we need to stop it immediately and turn it on to national parks, or else there is the idea of uh, native forestry can be productive. Um, now, in, interestingly, both of those arguments um, are very singular. It's effectively, one's an economic argument and, and one's an environmental argument. Neither of them work. Um, that is to say, what we really need to do is to recognise that forests are a dynamic resource and, and sometimes they can be managed for conservation purposes and sometimes they can be managed for production purposes. But also that wood is a resource outside of the forest system that can be used to replace concrete and steel. So forest systems have the opportunity to mitigate climate change, not just by growing new trees, but from the wood that's cut down from replacing intensive uh, carbon-intensive products and materials. So once you start taking a systems approach, you, you've then got very different messages. Um, is it about koala habitat or, or is it about tackling climate change? And, and this is where the single message idea that, that forestry has to exist and there's all these jobs that are dependent on it doesn't make any sense, nor does the idea of locking it up and turning it into ever larger national parks. Australia has an awful lot of national parks. And they do fantastic work. But the simple reality is we need to manage the whole forest system completely differently. It's, it's the, the national parks burnt uh, in the recent bushfires, a, a tremendous um, um, catastrophic um, amounts of national parks, and so did state forests. So we need here to, to recognise that we need, we need a diversity of approaches. I suppose the key thing here is to say to people, the whole system needs to change. We're all going to have to change. We're going to have to pretty much try and change everything, get used to changing. And then what we're going to do is try and create a better system. And we're going to do it one step at a time. And some things will work and some things won't. But we've got a clear idea of the vision. We know where we're going. We know what we're trying to achieve. And so what we really need to do is build, I suppose, trust and engagement with people and get them to work with us as we work towards these more positive visions. Hmm. So how do you get people to accept change and, and to be comfortable with change? Uh, I think one of the key things here is, first of all, make it easy. If you use, um, if you try and explain the science behind it all, it doesn't work. Science is ridiculously complicated. Science is really a method and a philosophy. You know, to not believe in science is, 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 is rather bizarre, frankly. Um, um, all science ever tries to do is establish a set of truths and facts and, and uh, therefore explaining science, which is terribly complicated to most people, myself included, doesn't work. We're actually not capable as humans of, of actually understanding complex systems. Um, they did some wonderful work at one of the best universities in America, MIT, uh, with a simple but sort of uh, example of a complex system, and most of the students couldn't work it out. So then they tried the same example different ways, and they still couldn't work it out. They drew pictures, they gave them graphs, they still couldn't work it out. So they thought, well, maybe it's this set of students. So they gave it to the professors. The professors couldn't work it out. Then they gave it to systems engineers, and a lot of them couldn't work it out. The point is, humans actually don't understand complexity. We understand cause and effect. We understand linearity. So to understand really complex problems that have delays and, and accumulations, it genuinely we don't, we're not able to do it very easily. So the best way to do it is to use metaphors and visuals, storytelling, um, Aboriginal 
people in Australia have always learnt and communicated through stories. Indigenous cultures around the world tell stories. Narrative is actually how we learn. The way we think about the future as people is through metaphor. That's actually how we imagine what the world will be like or what our lives will be like in a year's time or when we're on holiday. We use we use metaphorical examples. We think, I'll be on a beach, it'll be like this. It, we use examples of what we've done before to create this imagination. It's all in stories, metaphors, and visuals. So that's the first thing we do is we say to people, well, here's an example of what the future might be like. This is what we're aiming towards. And people go, I rather like the look of that. <laughs> we say, well, we haven't got any certainty we know how to get there, but that's where we're headed. Everything we're going to do is about delivering that. And people go, I like the look of that. And we go, mm. cool. That's what we need but to do. But where then do you see this, you know, the influence of the media, for example, who are perhaps looking for the black and white, looking for the date, the time when the solution is going to be provided, mm-hmm. and perhaps even to carry the cynicism of, oh, well, we've heard all this before, we've done all this before, that doesn't work. How then do you balance that as someone who's working in government to be able to try to patiently bring people along the journey um, while you're being pushed with a red-hot poker for an answer today? Uh, the media is really complicit, I have to say. Um, the media is, is to a larger extent, um, what's the phrase here? Turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And, and I don't think the media is really necessarily interested in um, reducing its um, influence or power. And that's happening anyway as a default. They failed to adapt and change. And that's why Australia has a ridiculous lack of diversity in its media. In Queensland, almost all of the published press is the murder press. We only have however many newspapers and, and news channels. And yeah, most people now get their news from their social media feed. Uh, the, the simple reality is the media really doesn't exist. It's a bunch of companies with profit objectives. Now, journalists are very different and they've been sidetracked. Um, and and I, I think that journalists are uh, the unfortunate uh, whipping boys, really, of where the media has been taken as a profit-making enterprise. And I think journalists would be very, very interested in, in exploring this issue in more detail. But look, ultimately, let's be honest, um, the, the influence of the media in terms of, I suppose, keeping the buggers honest, uh, however it used to be put, uh, is unfortunately on the wane and they've become deeply politicised and that's a real shame. Mm. So, listen, COVID-19, how does that impact uh, this establishment of of systems thinking, this longer thinking? I think that's a really nice way to describe it and this uh, probably slower thinking that enables, Mm. you know, more uh, uh, nuance to be revealed such such that you're not moving too fast towards a a solution uh, lest you sort of miss some important variable that uh, is going to contribute. So how has COVID uh, impacted the community and the society in such a way that perhaps there may be more tolerance and acceptance that we're not going to have all of the right answers straight away, nor are we going to be able to precisely tell you when we can give you exactly what that answer might be sometime into the future. Okay, let's use an example. Let's compare the US and their response with, say, New Zealand or Australia, but New Zealand's probably the most shining example. The US COVID response has been characterised by a constant and consistent division and conflict, the economy versus health. 
and the cure can't be worse than the disease and, and similar, in my opinion, utter rubbish. Um, the idea that we can have economic health in the absence of societal health is, is manifestly and patently mad. Um, the economy exists as nothing more than an invention of, of society that collectively all agree to follow a set of rules that we've invented, whereas our health is real. And, and therefore, whilst I have no problem with the economy as a set of rules that's been phenomenally successful at, at driving um, growth and success and development and, and brilliant health outcomes, um, the, the fact is that the New Zealand and Australia example, which is we're going to have a strong economy from having a strong health solution, has been much more successful. So let's, let's apply a systems approach to look at COVID because COVID is really a brilliant example of, of why we tackle um, a health pandemic, not with a health solution. So the first thing we did was effectively recognise that the global, the pandemic is driven by high transmission rates and therefore the best thing to do is stop people transmitting it to each other, i.e. stop them being mobile. And the first thing we did was close our borders and New Zealand did as well. Voila, that means we don't have new contagion coming in. The next thing we do is we, we, we lock down different areas where the contagion is found um, with degrees of success and, and Australia has been remarkably successful as has New Zealand. That's a behavioural change. We all agreed to wear masks, to use hand sanitizer. The air kiss and the hug died for a while and may never come back. We changed our behavior. Okay, It's not stable. It's a wicked problem. It can flare up here, there, and everywhere. So what did we do? We constantly came up with new solutions. We learned. We learned the best ways to manage isolations and quarantines, and, and, and we adapted what we're doing. We didn't have a clear solution. Are we going to try and um, wipe it out, or we're going to wait for a vaccine, or, or we're going to do both. And, and we worked towards multiple outcomes and goals across different timelines and horizons. We recognize that the disease can mutate. We recognize there could be a lot of unforeseen consequences. Um, and mental health issues, for instance, and, and domestic violence and those sort of things have been serious issues. And, and, and I think the state governments certainly um, have been very quick to, to recognize these and, and, and put solutions in place. And then at the same time, you can see some of the existing structural inequities um, being exacerbated by COVID. The impact of COVID has been much worse on young people, on poor people, on women, um, and certain segments that are not in favor with government policy, the arts, for instance. Um, so we see, we see chronic, um, if you like, policy failures in exactly the same place as they were there before. But I think that Australia and New Zealand's response to COVID has been a very good example of how you tackle a wicked problem. It used behavior change. It didn't try and tackle it straight away with a health solution. Um, it left that to the health professionals. It instead imposed changes to the rules-based system. It, it helped society by working together. Australians and New Zealanders worked incredibly well together. We did adopt a unity ticket on this. There's been nothing like the sort of ridiculous um, scenes we saw in the US with people protesting against wearing masks. Everybody here just got on with it. We've got fantastic apps. The New South Wales app the government has done is, is, is genuinely excellent and contact tracing. But people have also... They've worked together. So we have a positive, hopeful message. It's been made really, really easy for people to understand and to follow. We've imposed behavior change on people and, and they've done it and everybody's done it together. So I think COVID ultimately, if, if, if nothing else, demonstrates that the old system really wasn't terribly good. The old system we had of globalization, the way the world worked, was an extremely efficient way to spread a highly contagious pandemic. A much more, um, if you like, um, not controlled system, but a system whereby we're more responsible 
and we're also adaptive and we've got behavior change built into um, society, I think is a much more resilient model. Do you think that it's uh, sustainable? Do you think that the it's changed now? The, here particularly let's you know, refer to Australia and, and New Zealand as an example of uh, good practice. That do, you, do you believe that this sense of open communication, transparency, authenticity, trust, you know, the, the massive recovery in trust numbers in government in, in Australia from where they were uh, 12 months ago, do you think it's we're on the path, a sustainable path to ongoing improvements or does the system reset to where it was before uh, prior to the threat of COVID-19? Uh, it's a mixed bag. Um, you mentioned the word the, the trust there. Very interesting, the trust figures. They have indeed re- responded to government. Um, but I note that politicians, um, our current elected leaders, for instance, haven't recovered. I don't think Scott Morrison's numbers necessarily went up or haven't gone up significantly. Certainly trust in institutions has recovered well because they've done well. But I don't think politicians, and I could be wrong on this, I'm, I'm only just back a week from <laughs> holiday, but I think trust in the actual individuals themselves has not gone up and I would suggest there is the political system is not um, necessarily in a good place. Um, I I do think as well that Australia in particular has still got this weird thing about you know we're going to recover we're going to bounce back or whatever it is and we we simply won't. We need to build back better and redesign the system. I think going back to where we were reset whatever it might be would be a really bad thing to do i would personally prefer that we completely change how we manage our forest systems so we don't get the catastrophic bushfires that were still endemic in australia this time last year only 10 months ago we were still in the midst of bushfires and and we need to change fundamentally how we manage our system and and the the same for covid and the same for the economy so i think that there's aspects that will recover in terms of the measures you mentioned trust, for instance. There's aspects that won't. Um, and I, I would like to see a continuation of greater unity and positive messaging. But I've got a hunch that as we get closer to the next election and election cycles, as is the case with all um, Western democracies, we'll see a return once again to divisiveness and a conflict, um, unfortunately. So there you go. And a very big thanks to Howard Parry Husbands. What an entertaining guest. And systems thinking, really. Uh, continues to make its way, continues to be embedded into much of the problem solving uh, that needs to be uh, done when you look at these naughty, social, wicked problems. Um, Because thinking uh, about those problems uh, from a systems lens or a systems view certainly does help you to understand where those connections are and how you might go about strengthening uh, or un- unpicking some of those connections in order to uh, develop greater effectiveness, particularly as it relates to social enterprise. Uh, so a big thanks um, to Howard for coming on back in October of 2021 and a real highlight in our From the Vault series. As always, we do value your feedback and would greatly appreciate if you did have a moment for a rating or a review. Certainly, this conversation with Howard Parry Husbands is worthy of a rating or a review so others uh, can uh, discover 
the great content that we have been producing at GovComs and in transition all the way back to February of 2015. And I am so enjoying uh, this From the Vault series because it's taking us on a bit of a journey, isn't it? Um, through the evolution of our, uh, our function, our practice. Uh, and it's great to really look back and think about some of the change, but also to think about, you know, what, you know, those basic principles still uh, remain true today as they were back then. A big thanks again to Howard Parry Husbands. We'll be back in two weeks' time. But I'm David Pembroke, and it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.